Welcome back to another great episode of the Elite Seller Show. Today's wonderful guest is Emma Shermer-Tamir. You may have heard of her. And if you haven't, make sure that you do. You can check her out after the show. Too. So just to give you a little bit of a bio about Emma before we start. Emma, she actually transforms listings and does fantastic copywriting. She's the co-founder and CEO of Marketing by Emma. She's helped over 800 businesses from around the world, boosting their sales and building their brands online. And she creates some of the best-selling product pages, Amazon listings, websites, and copy that will make your dreams come true. So with that being said, I'm going to feel free to introduce Emma. We're going to be talking all about copywriting and listing optimization and how this is going to increase the ROI of your business. With that being said, Emma, I'll let you take it from here. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. Uh, excited to nerd out with you today. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So there's a couple interesting things about what you do. Your service, your business is not a full service Amazon business. You primarily focus on copywriting. How'd you get involved in this space? Yeah. So I feel like I kind of took a different entry point than what a lot of people do, which is that, first of all, I've never sold on Amazon before. I actually come from a much more traditional marketing background. And so I was in copywriting and content writing. And my husband, Erez, who is also my business partner, he happened to recognize a need in the Amazon space and that there was just kind of a lack of really strong writing that needed to be combined with listing optimization. And so it really started off as kind of a side thing that I thought, you know, maybe we do as we traveled around the world. And before I knew what was happening, we were starting to get approaches from people all over and this business kind of grew from there. So it was very unintentional, but I'm very excited to be where we are now. No, that's a, that's a beautiful process that you guys went through. Obviously, he saw the niche, you have the talent, you guys put one and two together. And now here you guys are, you're all over the place on Facebook, very popular in the Amazon community. So let's talk a little bit about your creative process when it comes to doing your listing optimizations. How does that go about? I would say there are a few components that we consider when we are kind of digging into things. And the main thing is really harnessing your curiosity because it's very easy to kind of fall into the desire to just want to copy what everybody else is doing. And that's probably the worst thing that you can do for your business, especially if you're going to be competing against products that have tons of reviews or that are really cheaply priced. Like unless you want to get into that incredibly aggressive advertising game where you can never really just sort of think about anything else because you're needing to constantly fight to maintain that rank then it's really worthwhile kind of taking a step back and thinking about where is there an opportunity to actually differentiate yourself. And secondly, I would say kind of in tandem with that is I don't think that anybody spends enough time really considering what the experience is like for the customer when they're shopping for a product on Amazon. So actually searching whatever search terms you're trying to go after into the search bar on Amazon, looking at the search results page and saying like, hmm, What's going on here? If I was wanting to buy this product, how would I go about choosing what listings I'm going to click into? What grabs my eye? What is kind of a turnoff? 
what details would I use to inform the click that I'm going to make? Because I think one of the things that Amazon surprisingly still does a pretty poor job of is helping customers compare products to each other. And so the better job that you can do at actually contrasting your product against the other options out there, then you make it much easier for people to be able to understand why they should choose you. So that's a lot of kind of the groundwork that we lay and the thoughts that we are thinking before we ever even go into, you know, what points we want to mention and the bullets or how to weave keywords in or anything like that. No, you make a very valid point. I think most people, especially shoppers, when they actually compare products, they usually do it at checkout and they're looking at one, like the main image, the title and the price and potentially some reviews, but they're not really going into detail as to what could truly differentiate this product because most products that when they actually search for, they have a very similar appeal to it. So when it comes down to your copywriting, what do you do? to help differentiate the products from the crowd of similar products out there. Before we dive into that, I think you mentioned a point of at checkout that is worth considering. And it's something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is this idea that actually the sale isn't made when somebody clicks complete purchase. Because if you're selling Amazon FBA, then if the customer is a prime customer, they have free returns which means that they haven't, they are highly likely not committed yet to your product. They've decided that you're good enough that they're willing to take a chance on you, but they also know that if your product sucks or if it's not what they thought it was, then they can just as easily return it. I mean, how many times even like just myself as a customer, I'll place an order for three or four different things and then, and then I just say, okay, well, I'll get these home, I'll look at them, and then I'll choose the one that I, that is the best fit for me. And I know that I'm not alone in that with my shopping behaviors. So the sale doesn't stop when a customer is purchased. You still have to be working to make the sale until somebody has the product in their possession and has that experience of saying, yes, this is what I thought it would be at the very least, if not exceeding expectations, and then making them feel like, that this is a product that they want to actually commit to instead of just turning around and dropping it off at UPS or Kohl's or wherever Amazon's telling them to take the their return. That sounds more like a, a very, like a big picture approach when it comes to optimizing a listing is that you're ensuring that the quality of the product and that the product itself and the copy that you put in it is consistent across the board so that when they actually do purchase the product, that they actually end up holding on to it for a long time so it doesn't end up in one of these return buckets. Exactly, because it's not really helpful to you at all if you're making a sale and potentially destroying the product in the meantime, because then you're not going to be able to turn around and resell it if they've used the item. So you're kind of just putting yourself into a loss situation. Not to mention, of course, that if you disappoint somebody enough, they're going to be more likely to leave a negative review. So that gap of expectations versus the experience that you're actually able to deliver can be really problematic and can be where a lot of danger happens. And so it's not about just making any and every sale, but really about making a sale to the right person where you have communicated exactly what they need to know so that they stick with it. So like an example that I'll give you, um, this is actually an example I was just talking about in a uh, summit that I'm presenting at. 
And it's a, by the way, people just started mowing the lawn across the street. Is that disturbing too? No, I can't hear a thing. Okay, cool. Uh, so uh, this example of bully sticks. So those are like dog chew products. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest determinants behind why somebody would purchase one type of bully stick or another is actually really basic of how long they are and how thick they are and then how many come with it. So it doesn't sound like a huge selling point, right? But if you don't communicate that clearly, then you're putting yourself into trouble territory because if somebody's expecting a really thick bully stick and it's a tiny little peewee of a stick that their pit bull can just chomp and swallow in two bites, then they just wasted $5 on a treat that isn't even going to give them the satisfaction of kind of channeling some of their dog's destructive energy. Whereas on the opposite spectrum, if you're selling a really thick bully stick and you don't communicate that clearly and somebody with a teacup poodle gets it and the bully stick is larger than their dog, that's also not an ideal scenario. And so you don't want to just kind of hide that information. But furthermore, if you are starting to get some of that feedback from customers where you see that there was a mismatch of information, that actually gives you a chance as a seller to think about whether there's a way that you can take that negative feedback use that to create a stronger listing and maybe even spin it in a positive way. So if, you're, if your bully sticks are really thin, then you could say that you know, they're ideally sized for your dainty dog that is, you know, that they'll be able to safely chew and that there will be no risk of it choking on it or, or what have you. But that just kind of requires some extra thought. And it really does go back to what I was speaking about earlier, which is all about just being curious and constantly looking for inputs that you can use to make a stronger choice, whether it's with your listing, whether it's with your packaging, whether it's with a product that you hadn't thought of that could be an, a unique opportunity of something to launch. Yeah, that's that's really interesting that you put it that way, especially fleshing out the details of the product to fit whatever the customer's needs are. So that sounds more like the customer journey aspect of it. And when you're going about that customer journey, I imagine there's more to it than just doing a simple listing. There's also the EBC, uh, there's A plus content fact of it, there's websites and everything like that. Is that something that you specialize in? Is that something that you branch out in and does your copywriting entail uh, changing up the language on packaging, changing up the language on the product itself? Any kind of details, product inserts, stuff like that? Yeah, we do that quite a bit because something else that's incredibly important, especially as you start to kind of transition into this idea of really want to build a brand beyond just kind of an assortment of products and a catalog on Amazon. So when you start to think about brand building, one of the things that's incredibly important is to make sure that you have a cohesive and consistent experience that you're giving to customers across every touch point so that when they are looking at your packaging that they're getting the same impression of you as they did on your amazon listing as they would on your website on your social media one of the reasons why a lot of times brands lack that is because they're not intentionally deciding how they want to present themselves and who they really want to be as a business and so then it just becomes kind of very grab and go or like oh i saw this trick that says, do it this way. So we're going to try that out and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And there's not necessarily the, the thought behind how can I take this tactic that I saw, but use it in a way that is still aligned with and true to how I want to present myself. So that can be anything from the question of 
to use emojis or not use emojis, which by the way, are against terms of service, even though I know that a lot of people get away with using them. This is a complete aside, but just because your competitors are doing something does not mean that Amazon allows it. And so it's always worth at least checking the rules to see, is this compliant? And then if it's not, and you still want to take that risk, at least do it knowingly instead of doing something, not understanding that it could be putting your listing at risk and then having to deal with a suspended listing and all the mess that goes along with that. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting that you bring up Amazon TOS and that because that was something I was actually about to ask you about, which is how does copywriting prevent TOS violations? It's something that can both prevent and also be one of the quickest and easiest ways to land into troubled territory because there is a lot of nuance to the language that you can and cannot use on Amazon. And so sometimes you might just unknowingly fall into something and then you get flagged as a pesticide and you're like, my product has nothing to do with pesticides. So why would I be dealing with this? Like an example that immediately comes to mind with this is the word mold. So of course, mold can mean organism that grows on old fruit and food. But mold can also mean like using a material to capture the shape of something. So you take a mold of your teeth or mold of a baby's hand. And so having to navigate around some of those things when a word that is the most accurate way of describing your product could also be something that triggers Amazon's algorithm to flag your product. But wouldn't the Amazon algorithm be able to catch something like that? It's just like, it's a simple spelling differentiation, right? So mold is M-O-L-D and to mold something is M-O-U-L-D, right? So I would imagine that they'd be able to actually differentiate between one letter and another. And if somebody's using the word mold, M-O-U-L-D in a pesticide product to get around putting the word mold, M-O-L-D in it, they would be able to actually pick that up based on the category, right? So M-O-L-D is the more common way of spelling mold of, you know, your teeth or eggs or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So... It's not that simple, but you know, there's also, there's all sorts of things where maybe you even have whatever certifications that you need in order to be able to say a certain term and you can still get into trouble. Or then you have things that are not even related to Amazon. So let's say that you're selling a skincare product or, you know, a supplements and making sure that you're saying things that are compliant with how the FDA says you need to write about certain things. So like if you're selling a skincare item, you can't say it removes wrinkles. You can't say that it shrinks pores. And you might hear that kind of language and think, but I've seen a million companies that write that sort of stuff. Well, they might write it, but then at some point they're probably going to get in trouble with it. So there's all those little kinds of details that you need to be aware of. And then when you get into creating A plus content, the list of language that you can't use grows even more. So, you know, timely words like now and today, and some of those things can get you flagged, even if you might not be using it in a promotional type of sense. Huh. So that's pretty interesting that you actually talk about that. I actually wanted to segue into A plus content and your whole creative strategy around doing that because a lot of people, especially Amazon listings, when it comes down to A plus content, they use a lot of infographics, they use they're using a ton of pictures, very little words. What is the process that you go about doing it that really fleshes out A plus content and makes the listing pop? So first is just understanding the product and understanding what is required to really present the product fully. 
So I always want people to not just look at a trend of this is how to do, you know, to create a winning A plus page in 2021 and just call it a day. So right now, the, the most popular way of creating A plus content is exactly what you described. It's very minimal text. It's just mostly very strong images and maybe some infographics woven in there. And that can work, but there's a risk in just taking that as the end all be all and going too extreme with that. Because what happens is let's say that you're selling a more complicated product or you're just talking to a customer that wants additional information then suddenly they don't really have anywhere to go to get that on your page. You know, maybe they could go do extra research, but the more work that somebody has to do, the less likely that they're going to be turning into a customer. And so it's really a fine line of understanding what is just enough to give a really solid understanding of your product, but not so little that people are going to be left scratching their heads and saying, I don't even fully understand what's going on here. And I think that's a, the risk that a lot of these overly image heavy A plus content strategies take. And so we like to go somewhere where, yes, it is very bold with images. We are using infographics, but then still using some of that text space to help expand on things. So it's not that you have to read that text in order to fully understand things. But if you are the kind of person that wants a little bit of more information it's just right there and available to you to read and get the details that you need yeah that's a pretty interesting approach that you're obviously doing right over there i want to take this conversation in a little bit different direction and i want to talk to you about your thoughts on copywriting ai versus the human touch what are your thoughts on that because i know that a lot of copywriting services they'll use conversation ai or they'll use this and that um, some other tool out there to help them. Obviously, uh, Grammarly is very popular. How do you go about adding the personal and human and authentic touch to it that really transcends what a copywriting tool can actually do? This is a great question. And to be perfectly honest, I have not yet checked out any of those services, but it's on my list of things to do because I really do want to see like how they work and sort of what it looks like. My gut feeling, and maybe this is just because I am a writer and so it's a bit of self-preservation, I have no idea. So if you disagree, please disagree with me. But my gut feeling is it's sort of like with music, they have AI that's able to compose music that structurally is supposed to be as beautiful as the very best composers in the world. And yet when people listen to it, they don't have the same emotional experience as they do to something that was composed by a human. So I believe that there's something to be said for being able to be structurally correct into following the rules, but there's some emotional substance there that at least I have not yet seen AI capable of replicating that goes beyond just kind of, you know, more formulaic sort of choose this set of verbs, choose this set of outcomes, choose this benefit that you're trying to present and call it a day. It almost sounds like the authenticity approach when it comes to writing is from more of a personal place. And especially when it, you gave the example about the music with composers, I, I would imagine that that was probably like a double blind test where afterwards that they told them, they told them like, okay, this particular track was made by a person. This one was made by a human. And it goes into that uncanny valley. I'm not too sure if you're familiar with that, where it's essentially like uh, when people were actually doing uh, 3D rendering of human faces, it was a bit too real. So people were turned off by it. 
but they can tell just by looking at it because the human brain is capable of doing a thousand processes in a millisecond that that's not a real person, but this is a real person because it's either a bit too perfect or it's a bit too imperfect. So I imagine when it comes down to the listing and when it comes down to copywriting, it has that same sense, right? Our human brains are just going through, they're reading it and then it's analyzing it. We may, we may not understand that, but at some point in time, it's just like, this just seems structurally too perfect, you know, you know, to error is human. So if you see errors in that, I would have a better sense of saying like, this was actually written by a person while this one's just a bit too perfect. And this seems like this had a lot of programs implemented to actually make this seem the way it is. So with that being said, let's talk about the ROI process of copywriting. How does this actually benefit Amazon sellers? Because I noticed that with 800 plus uh, happy customers, Obviously, there's a benefit to what you do. So can you give me a detail breakdown on that? Yeah. Can I first comment on what you said? Because I feel like this is such an interesting topic that we were discussing. And I would love to kind of take a step backwards before going forward. So it's interesting because you mentioned imperfection. And I agree that with, you know, visual things that maybe that's some of it. But I actually feel that it's less of the imperfection, maybe as much as the kind of heart behind it, like the human empathy and emotion that I think can be lacking. And we can see that same sort of thing when we're even engaging with somebody that feels like a bit too contrived and manipulative. And we couldn't necessarily place a finger on saying, why did I get a funny feeling about this? But there's something about it that feels artificial that you can't explain. And it's probably a combination of a lot of our different um, receptors picking up on subtle cues that we're not even aware of. And of course, when you're interacting with somebody, you have everything from their micro expressions to the tone of voice and body language and all those different things. But I do think that a lot of those components also happen when it comes to anything else creative. And is there that level of empathy versus, you know, you see those like really intense overly salesy sales copy types of things or like the infomercial stuff. And it's clear that they're just trying to sell you at any cost. And so I wonder if that's where some of the issues could potentially be, because I think most people that are using something like conversion AI, they're using it as a base or maybe to generate ideas, but then they are kind of working with that to refine it and bring out uh, something that's a little bit more authentic and connected with who they are as a business and who they're trying to sell to as a customer. Yeah, they're supplementing their copywriting. It's kind of like, you know, just taking any kind of vitamins or something like that to boost your health. But this is just to help their listing. It, it, I imagine it becomes a challenge when they're using it as a crutch to build all their work off of. So going back to the previous topic that we're, <laughs> we're on, tell me your thoughts about that. So ROI, yeah, I think that obviously the easiest thing to look at is your conversion rate, but it's definitely not the only space that you can see a positive impact with copy. So it can be everything from your organic ranking, both on and off of Amazon. It can also be reflected in your return rates, like we were speaking about earlier, and the health of your seller account. And what's interesting is that all of those different facets actually sort of contribute to being able to, if you're doing those well, being able to rank better and it's kind of feeds itself. So the more that you can really lock into how to do this right, the better the impact really has on, on every aspect of your business. You're having to spend less to acquire new customers. You're 
if you can figure out how to really build out that branding piece, then you have repeat customers or you have word of mouth recommendations or you have, you know, cross promotion and people buying other types of products from you. So there are a lot of those different things that can happen, but it really requires thought and intention and strategy in order to be able to achieve that. And that includes the title of the listing as well, right? So you guys are definitely going through and you're transmorphing the title to make it sound more authentic, more beautiful. How do you get people to actually read the product description or the bullet points? Because I find that to be like one of the biggest challenges, especially in the Amazon space is that most people, they care about their images, they care about their price point, they care about their reviews. How do you get people to actually pay attention to their listing, uh, their title, and their bullet points? Because on mobile, it only shows a certain amount. And also, how do you get around the character limitations that you have in the product description? I think first, the main thing is stop trying to make overgeneralizations about people. And yes, there are going to be some people that no matter how amazingly written your listing is, they're not going to read it but they were never going to read it. And that's just not how they shop. You know, maybe they're the kind of people that they're like, oh yeah, that looks fine. Or they'd shop by reviews or whatever it is. And there will always be those kinds of people in the world. But there are a lot of different types of shoppers. There are the shoppers that even if they're buying a $10 item, they're going to spend like five hours researching blogs and reading all of the reviews. And that's just how they make the decisions in their lives. And so it would be really foolish to not want to also be able to connect with them. And then you have the people in the middle where maybe with certain types of products, they're going to want to know a little bit more or their mood, or, you know, if, it, if they're spending above $20, then maybe they get more serious or whatever it is. And so there's also a lot of people that might be somewhere in between, or they have like a set buying criteria. So they need to do a certain amount of reading because they need to know that this product does X, Y, and Z is compatible with this particular type of device and has this weight because they want to be able to easily travel with it. And so they need to to be diving in enough to find that information. And if you can present that information, that's also going to grab them and engage them and interest them, then they may just continue reading more because you do a good enough job at really grabbing and holding their attention. So speaking of information, obviously about a product, how do you go about the process of choosing the information to actually display in the bullet points? Because there could be so many unique facets of a product. When it comes down to it at the end of the day, how do you go about differentiating what's going to be a top priority versus what's going to be pushed into another aspect of the listing? So a few things. One is kind of going back to what I was just mentioning, that need to know information. So understanding what most customers buying criteria is going to be. So if it's an electronic, there's a high likelihood that compatibility is something that even if it's not a differentiator, even if it's not something super sexy about your product in particular, people just need to know that. And they need to be able to find that really easily because if you tuck it away, then a lot of people will just give up and they're not going to continue searching. Or like what I was talking about with the bully sticks and just needing to know the length and thickness are just important basic details. So there's some of that that you need to establish first. And then from there, 
being clear about what is the main benefit of your product? Like what is the main motivator behind why somebody would be going onto Amazon in the first place to search whatever search terms they're going to, to be able to eventually find you for? And how can you connect around that and do it in a way that's going to highlight your unique differences? And that sounds like a lot and it is, but it's important. No, it sounds like it's important. I would imagine that some of that information can easily be displayed in like an infographic and in third image or even put down in your A plus content to actually have that verbally written out so that people can digest that information. It may work for some, it may work for others where it's more of a visual aspect in doing that. Do you ever see your business marketing by Emma actually going into full listing optimization, including images or branching out into that category? So while we don't actually make the images, we do recommend images to either use or create because imagery is so impactful and text is so impactful, but together there's just, you can take them to a, a new height of sales power, the sales power couple, if you will, because it's exactly what you said. Different people are going to be looking at different things or, you know, I might be more of a visual shopper. So if you're not including text in your images, what a loss of opportunity to not be able to communicate some of your key benefits or those important details in visual form, but also having that text to make sure that no matter who's looking at the image, that everybody's going to be getting the same message that you want them to get. So that is really important, which is one of the reasons why we offer that with some of our packages. But the other thing is that there's information sometimes that's better digested textually, and sometimes there's information that's better digested visually. For example, size. It's much easier to see a picture of something, and then ideally maybe even some sort of lifestyle image that is showing that product in reference to something that's familiar. Like for myself, example, I don't have the greatest spatial knowledge in the world. So if I see dimensions, it's hard for me to understand what that actually means in real life. But if I see those dimensions and also see a picture of the item next to something that I'm familiar with, then I can get a rough idea of the size without having to do some mind-bending calculations to understand what three by 27 looks like. Yeah, kind of like having that silhouette of a human being right next to a product right there. And that gives you a better frame of reference or having it next to like a can of cola or a penny just so that people can actually understand. It's like, oh, penny's this big. This product is that big. Gotcha. So it definitely um, helps facilitate the process of understanding what the product actually looks like and what their expectations are. So they're not disappointed when they get the product and it ends up back in the return bucket. So I know that you've been writing for a quite a long time and you're also a well-traveled person. How does your traveling, your quote-unquote expat adventures in life tie into your ability to come up with creative writing? I think that they really go hand in hand. And I think it all stems from, I know I've dropped this word a few times throughout our conversation, but curiosity and I would imagine, I mean, I can't answer this for you, but at least for me, that was one of my strongest motivators behind living in all of the pl different places that I wanted to live was I want to see what life is like here. And there's something really unique about living in a different country that takes you so far out of your comfort zone 
that you're able to look at even the most mundane things in a way that makes them interesting because you you are like a child, you know, like you don't know how the bank works in Spain or what hours it's open. And it's like, it's so simple and straightforward if you just, this is how it works to go to the bank wherever you grew up, but suddenly you realize that there are actually all of these pieces of knowledge that you're using that you don't know how you acquired about how the world is supposed to be. And suddenly you're confronted with something really different. And so I think having that perspective and then combining it with a need to be able to communicate and understand and interact with so many different people, it really gives you an opportunity to to just kind of understand, maybe this is getting a little bit too philosophical, but just to just understand humans better, to see where our commonalities lie, but to also see where our differences are and to question all of those things even about yourself. And so I can't imagine how different I would be just as a person and certainly how I would be as a copywriter if I hadn't had those experiences, because I think it allows me to be able to more quickly and easily understand sort of like the emotional layers behind something. No, no, that's a beautiful answer. That's a beautiful answer. Honestly, Uh, what I, what I really think comes down to is uh, again, your curiosity, your ability to actually go and put yourself in a unique environment where you're not familiarized with what's going on. That's allowing your mind to stretch. And it could be as something as simple as, you know, looking at a menu at a restaurant that you never plan on eating at or going to a grocery store and just reading some labels and then getting getting some idea of what kind of dialectical tones and words that are actually being used to present that product that you're actually trying to buy in a different country. And I imagine that that would tie in tandem, go hand in hand with creating beautiful descriptions about products because now your mind, it can literally tap into another way of thinking and another way of speaking to be able to pull words that you normally wouldn't actually use and being able to emphasize that and express that to the end user, which is honestly fantastic. I want to, I'd like to know your thoughts since you've been doing this for a while. How do you prevent burnout as a copywriter? I think in some ways it's a little bit inevitable that at times you're going to experience burnout. Like I discovered for myself, I can't just write product descriptions all day, every day. But then I also have team members who they've been doing it for years and they love their job and they continue to be excited about what they're doing. So I think that everybody has their own set of rules of what brings them joy and how they stay excited about what they're doing and feel challenged. I personally, if I was, if I was just copywriting all day, every day, I would have burned out four years ago. I kind of started to, that's how I ended up hiring people as I was just feeling like I can't, I just can't do this all day and feel satisfied and challenged. And I started to feel too easy, I guess. No, no, no. That's, that's a, that's a perfect (laughs) answer. Honestly, you, you made the smart move by bringing on other people to offload some of the work that you were doing because it was becoming stressful to you at a certain point in time. And now you have a beautiful, fantastic marketing agency that specializes in uh, copywriting, listing optimization, branding, and truly fleshing out the whole process of it. Do you find that you spend more of your time developing websites for clients now with uh, the branding and content, or is it still primarily focused on Amazon? We do a lot of Amazon and we are doing more and more off Amazon work. I think that a lot of that sort of speaks to the growth of the Amazon space and the way that that's really changed because I just think, 
as time goes on and from what we've seen, it is a risky move to just kind of categorize yourself as having an Amazon business, especially what that looked like four years ago, where it was probably a very disjointed catalog of products that you chose based on, you know, search volume and little else. Yes, you can still be successful doing that. But if you are wanting to be able to move beyond Amazon, if you are wanting to sell in retail, if you're wanting to, you know, have your own website or, or go do other things, then it requires putting more thought into that brand piece. But even if you're just selling on Amazon, there's more and more privileges that Amazon is giving to those that are brand registered. I mean, when we got into this space, what it was called EBC at the time, Enhanced Brand Content, now A Plus Content, nobody was doing that. Like, no, nobody. And now I'm amazed by how many people right out of the gate they're starting off brand registered and they're launching with A plus content. And I think that's just reflective of the space as a whole and how Amazon is really valuing the importance of brand and trying to encourage sellers to value it as well. Understanding that that's where they're going to be able to rebuild customer trust and attract off Amazon traffic and some of those different things that I would imagine Amazon wants to continue doing a better and better job of. Yeah, Amazon definitely has lowered the barrier entry to getting brand registered. And a lot of sellers are actively using that to their benefit. And what the shift, the tonal shift that I've seen on Amazon is that Amazon is definitely focusing more on the branding aspect, particularly with, with certain sellers by having them have like the follow button and having uh, branded pages and unique aspects that are that are keen specifically for social media. Now, how does that tie in tandem to uh, increasing sales across the board for the entire brand? Since most sellers are actively trying to niche down, I imagine that your line of work is if they're satisfied with one listing optimization that they end up usually getting their entire catalog done. So can you rephrase what your actual question is, please? Yes, absolutely. The branding aspect across the board when it comes to Amazon and for sellers, how does that apply to strengthening the brand, not only on Amazon or off Amazon? So one of the things, it's one of my favorite psychological principles. It's called the mere exposure effect. Are you familiar with it? No. Okay. So the idea is essentially that the more we see something, the more familiar it becomes and the more positive of an impression we have of it, even if we haven't had direct experience with it. So it's kind of the principle of just like advertising a bunch. And so if you see something over and over again, even if you're not actively considering it and thinking about it, then when you are ready to purchase something and you see that brand, you have a positive association with it, even if you even if you don't know where it came from. If you are advertising across Amazon and whatnot and people are seeing your brand places, then you kind of already have a leg up by the time they get to your page. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part is how many times when you're shopping for something, do you land on a page that isn't the right product or you like this product and you want to see what else they sell? So why would you just treat that product as a silo, even if your catalog isn't all closely, closely related? If it's still kind of within the same category, if you've done a good job at winning that person over then there's a likelihood they want to see the other things that you're selling. I do that all the time where just in my own personal shopping, let's say I'm looking for yoga pants 
but I really like the material of these yoga pants. And I'm like, wow, it would be so awesome to have bike shorts and uh, like romper and a few other things in the same material. Cause I just want to live and breathe in this material. But then if I go and I look at their storefront and it's a hot mess or it's not organized or for whatever reason, it just has some one of their products or it does what I really hate, which is where it, ha- it has all of their products. And so it's totally overwhelming and hard to navigate. Then you're missing out on a really easy upsell. Honestly, you strike me as a Lululemon kind of gal when it comes to yoga pants. I could be wrong about that. I feel a little bit offended by that. Oh, but... just... <laughs> No, Lululemon is interesting. And speaking of brand, I was actually on a panel with uh, someone from their company a few years ago in Toronto, and we were talking about omni-channel retail, and they were talking about their very intentional choice of not being on Amazon and how it didn't align with their brand and that they'd made that choice that they they had no plans whatsoever to enter that marketplace do with that what you will. But I find it pretty interesting because first of all, maybe there are people that are looking for Lululemon-like yoga pants that you could now capture if you know how to do that well. But it also speaks to this idea of really looking critically at anything, any choice that you're making for your business and making sure that it aligns with where you want to be going and it aligns with the customers that you're looking to sell to. And so for Lululemon, they decided that wasn't the right choice. And for you, maybe it's that doing this type of like insert and funnel strategy isn't the right choice because it would really turn customers off and give them a bad taste in their mouth. Uh, So at least just having that thought and awareness and understanding of how that should fit into what you're doing. Yeah, that's obviously encapsulating everything that we've talked about, having that that customer journey really come full circle by understanding not only your customer, but your product and understanding the way to actually bridge those two together with by creating a beautiful tapestry of words that are going to interweave not only your products, but your brand and the overall energy that you're trying to purvey to your, uh, to your buyers at the end of the day, whether it's on Amazon, whether it's off Amazon, or whether it's just on a packaging product or insert. So with that being said, I want to thank my my wonderful guest, Emma Shermer-Tamir. You can find her socials all below the link of this video, or if you're listening on a podcast, you can just navigate over to Facebook. You can just type in Emma's name, Marketing by Emma is her website, or you can just type in Amazon. Is, uh, is that another facet of it, which I think is really clever? It is. <laughs> I can't take credit for that. That's uh, my husband slash business partner, Ares, is uh he deserves all the credit for the Amazon gem. No, that's uh, that's that's extremely creative and beautiful that he came up with that. So with that being said, Emma, thank you for being here. And if you'd uh, like to join EliteSeller.com, just head on over to www.EliteSeller.com. You can sign up today for a 14-day free trial. Any one of our plans, just type in the code JOSH15 at checkout. If you're interested in getting a demo, don't worry. We have that uh, link below in the bio. You can click that link and you can set up a demo with our sales team. Thank you, Emma. We do appreciate you being here. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Take care.